Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. Hey, everyone, welcome back to the New Stack Makers. I'm excited to have two very special guests today Kim Bannerman and Kelsey Hightower, both of Google. Hey, Kim. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Alex. Kim, tell us a little bit about what you do. Now, Kim and I go way back, 2012, maybe thereabouts or so. And then Kim reminded me in a tweet she posted yesterday that it was in 2014 at the EMP that we first met Kelsey. That was such an exciting time, wasn't it? I mean, there were things were just getting started. And gosh, you know, maybe that's a way to look back at this. What was the mood like? What was the tenor of the mood? Was it open? Was it receptive? Was it not? Was it empathetic? What do we, you know, what do we see now? I'm curious. Maybe that's a, just a, a way for us to start, start it. And, you know, and I really want the two of you to have this conversation. And maybe that's a good way to begin is just to have you both talking about it. I also want to say Daryl Taft is the co-host today. And Daryl is well-known journalist, and he's met all kinds of technologists in his day and editors in his day. And I'm sure he has some thoughts about empathy as well. But Kim and Kelsey, I'm going to let you take it away. So Kim, maybe you could just start about that reflection on those times. Yeah. Um, So I had just started at CenturyLink Cloud, and I think that was the Newstack's uh, first event, maybe. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And definitely in Seattle. And so. you know, we sponsored it and everything was containers and everything was Docker, right? This was before Kubernetes was even released. Um, It was look, it had just been announced and was getting released very soon. Um, But we were talking about, you know, should Docker have a UI for people to be able to use it a little bit better? Um, You know, what, who are the players? I think Core uh, Core OS is where Kelsey was at the time. Is that right, Kelsey? Oh yeah, I was definitely at Core OS. That was definitely the Core OS days. Maybe you could tell us about CoreOS. What was CoreOS, Kelsey? Well, I think for people during the early days of containerization, you know, there was Docker, Mesosphere, CoreOS. And CoreOS's goal was to build Google's infrastructure for everyone else. We used to call it Giphy. And so the concept there was all the ideas that were articulated in the white papers that Google had been putting out for almost a decade prior uh, CoreOS wanted to build open source equivalent of those ideas, like the key value store where configuration is stored, which is a part of Kubernetes still today. Uh, and then they had an operating system that was dedicated to the task of running this new thing that we were all talking about at the time called containers. So back to you, Kim. So it was 2014. 2014, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to even think of who all was at that specific event too. We were um, a few companies that are no longer with us, I believe, um, companies that have merged and, you know, been, you know, purchased since then, obviously CoreOS being one of them with Red Hat. It was right before Kubernetes was released. And I remember there was a lot of talk about how, how easy it was to use because at the time, and even still, you know, Google prides itself on, uh, strong engineering principles and practices. You know, we want to bring, you know, a lot of the things that we've learned through Borg and other internal systems out into the world. And so how that was going to be packaged and uh, pushed into open source was definitely a big topic at hand at the time. How that would affect Docker? Would Docker be part of that ecosystem? Would they not be? 
Um, you know, those are some of the early conversations that were happening. And then, you know, if you think about July of 2015, that was the, the Kubernetes release party in Portland, Oregon. Um, and that was the next time I actually saw Kelsey um, was speaking at that um, conference. And it was um, the big release party at Rogue Brewery. And, you know, they already had customers. So Zulily was there. You know, I think that's the first time I met Joe Beta and Craig McLucky from Heptio Days. Now they're part of VMware. Um, very, very early days, but I remember talking to Zulily about how they were already using uh, Kubernetes. And so it was a very interesting conversation. Um, and then long about that time, I think that's when Kelsey either left to go to Google or had just joined Google. And I think for people listening, the context here is that when containers comes out, even though a lot of the discussions had containers at the center of the universe, the target user, it was just going to be a small piece of the overall architecture that they were already adopting and moving towards. We're coming off of the dawn of DevOps, configuration management tools, Puppet, Chef, Ansible. So before all the Docker cons, people were at the configuration management conferences, right? Like that was going to be the future of infrastructure, infrastructure as code. It turned out when Docker showed up, we were automating infrastructure in many ways with the wrong abstractions or no abstractions. And so when those two worlds kind of emerged in parallel, so you had the people trying to automate everything and the container community was coming and saying, but you're automating the wrong thing. And so Docker shows up and says, instead of talking about Ruby, Python, Java, and all the programming languages as independent problems to solve, Docker takes a holistic approach and says, let's just abstract away the concept of an application into a package, a universal package. And that lasted a really long time. You know, you have this Docker runtime that you can install on your laptop. You can install on your servers in the cloud, on-prem, but something was missing. And this is where I think the need for empathy, because I think these two things were kind of delivered from two different worlds. I think ops drove a lot of the configuration management world and the DevOps movement, but I think developers drove the containerization and distributed systems movement. And so when those two worlds came together, it wasn't very clear how you use them together, right? In the early days, people talked about Docker eliminating the need entirely from config management, even though Docker needed a way to mount config files into applications. So there's this big disconnect between, I think, those two communities. So when Kubernetes comes along, Kubernetes is trying to bridge this gap between these two worlds, actually. It layers on top of both of those concepts. Kubernetes brings this configuration language to this container landscape. So even though most people talk about Kubernetes as a container orchestration tool, but really emerged the world of configuration management. You know, we talk about those Kubernetes YAML files. It brings that declarative approach to infrastructure to the world of containers. And I think that's when we start to see these two communities start to merge. But then that leaves a lot of room for empathy to make sure that both communities understand where each we're coming from so we get all of the value. When I first joined Google, um, it was to help scale Kel Kelsey and it's still sort of that way now. And we were starting to realize that the Google way of walking into a customer and saying, you know, it's Google's way or the highway. And the customer says, I want to do everything like you do. We started realizing <laughs> that that didn't really work. And it wasn't very customer friendly because 
Google had something that a lot of our customers didn't have, and that was Borg and a lot of other tools internally and a lot of, you know, super deep knowledge over time, you know, 15, 20 years of principal engineering uh, folks that were leading the charge in, in many of our programs and products. And so since then, um, we've tried to work really hard to build trust with our customers. Um, and I pivoted away from customer engagements as much um, as I used to do when I first joined. And that's when we really said, hey, Kelsey, we, I think we need to really start focusing on the customers and how we're going to bring those signals and the feedback back into Google uh, by not just, you know, sending it, you know, meeting or having a PM attend or an executive attend a meeting, but we really need these engineers to start understanding like how the how the customers and users are using their products day to day um, and how the dependencies across the horizontals are, you know, across product um, are really affecting uh, their experience. And so that's how this was born uh, was not that long after I joined Google. And, and it's good for people to be reminded that Google has always had a culture of what we call dog fooding, using the things that we build. Many Googlers use Gmail. Many Googlers use YouTube and search. So there's a lot of the feedback loop between the people who are building tools for other people and getting the chance to use them ourselves. So we typically are opted into dog fooding programs, early releases of our video chat that is now called Google Meet, early access to things like our calendar app. So we tend to give a lot of feedback, but that's on the consumer side. When the cloud world came, you got to remember Google was coming from 20 years of building specialized infrastructure for our own needs. And honestly, we were solving a class of problems that most customers don't have, problems that customers don't wanna have, like underwater sea cables and backup satellites for internet connectivity and data centers across the world. This is a super hard problem. And to be honest, not every customer needs that, but Borg, our container orchestrator was designed to layer on top of that. And I like to tell many people that Things like Kubernetes reflect the infrastructure it runs on top of. So in the world of cloud, which is a little bit different use case than the one we had to solve internally for 20 years prior, we had to figure out how to meet customers where they were and then show them what's next. And in order to do that, we wanted to bring some of that culture from the consumer side to the cloud side. And this is where the idea for things like empathy sessions are born, where we take the Kubernetes team. You got to remember, Kubernetes wasn't a day one success. Like, you know, people have kind of revisionist history here that when Kubernetes landed, we knew it would end up where it is now, which is kind of this de facto standard from container orchestration. When it came out, everyone, including the people working on it, were like, oh, this thing is way too complex. It's a tool in search of a problem, right? I remember going to Docker cons and sitting in the stands and, you know, Docker showing how easy Docker was in contrast to something like Kubernetes. So we were all panicking that we were missing the mark because we lacked the empathy and understanding of what the community need to be successful with these tools. And so when I joined Google, eventually moving on from CoreOS and joining Google, one thing I observed is that a lot of the engineers really knew deep expertise on various parts of Kubernetes. There's the scheduler, the thing that manages networking, storage, security. People could go super deep, but there's this kind of... Um, situation where people who can build a car may not have a driver's license. You can build phenomenal cars, but you may not know how to drive them. So what we started to do is give people exercises or get people all together. And we started with team offsites where we can get a hundred engineers in a single place 
and we would have them team up and say, hey, we want you to do this task. If I showed you this task, you would say, oh, yeah, you could probably do this in a few minutes. But the truth is, if you have to start from scratch and you don't have all your tools and shortcuts at your disposal, these tools seem impossible. But the nice thing about giving people those examples, they were able to really get hands-on with empathy and actually feel it for themselves. So when they started suggesting solutions on how to overcome these kind of shortcomings, it became what we think of now as empathetic engineering. When you go back to your desk, every keystroke that you do, every product improvement that you aim for should be rooted in how the customer will experience it as well. And how do you get there? I mean, do you have direct interaction with customers? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny when Kim used to attend these things, we kind of, we came from outside of Google. So we're kind of outsiders. We're bringing this outsider perspective. And Typically, I've worked for smaller companies where we only have a single product, right? Google Cloud has hundreds and hundreds of products. So it's really hard to, you know, have to use your own product for everyday use. So how do you get there? I think a big part of me has always been customer zero, right? I use these products. I use them myself. I interact with people in the community who use them. I answer questions about them. So I'm really close to the struggle. I'm really close to the pain. So when I go visit a customer or jump on the whiteboard with someone in the community and they're unsure about a particular uh, part of the product, like they're unable to fulfill the thing that they set out to do, all of that knowledge, there's ways that you can communicate that knowledge. You can write it down and submit a bug report. Hey, customer had a problem with this thing. But if an engineer gets flooded with a hundred of these bug reports, you start to just kind of, you know, you get desensitized to it, right? It's just like, there's going to be a hundred bug reports. We'll never be able to fix them all. So the way you get there is you have to try to pick the top ones that matches reality. So you don't talk about the bug, you talk about the thing that people want to do, and you let the engineers find the bug themselves. But from the engineering end, where do you introduce this whole concept of em empathy? Is it at requirements? Is it from the start, from the outset? Typically, you try to do it with requirements. And that, that works too sometimes, right? Sometimes you'll have a, what we call a product description doc and you try to write down the problem you're trying to solve. And then there's another section around critical user journeys. I want the user to be able to accomplish task X, but there can be a problem with that because it's just words on the page. You might just start working and coding directly to the specification and it works, but it may not feel right. It may not integrate well into someone's existing workflow. You can make assumptions about people's starting point by just looking at a customer journey. Typically, it's best to follow up either after you've shipped, ideally before you ship and say, hey, now that the feature is done, maybe before we release it to customers, I want you to try to solve this particular task. Now, that task may need one of those features that the team has been working on, but typically customers need like 20, 30 other features that are related to that technology. And you can't get that experience unless you step away from the myopic view of solving this one problem or working on this one feature, you almost got to step back and approach it the way customers do. And that's what creates the empathy. And I think Kim's job was to try to scale this into a program. And I let her uh, talk about how we try to make sure that every Google has an opportunity to experience this. Yeah. The one thing that I can tell you is that we wanted to look at this in a holistic way from a customer side. And so what we do is we revoke access for uh, when we do an empathy session. Um, and the folks that are in our empathy sessions, sessions are not just engineers that are building that product. We invite folks from um, adjacent product teams, 
uh, that are engineers and PMs. We also are very, very tight with our UX teams and research teams. Um, oftentimes CEs will come in, solution architects, folks that really have the voice of the customer, um, as well as uh, developer relations. And we started scaling this um, a little bit more last year during the pandemic. These used to be all in person, usually during an offsite. We, uh, you know, product teams tend to do these a few times a year. Oftentimes they're in Sunnyvale or San Francisco at the time. So it was very convenient for us to pull in other teams from other places and, you know, hey, let's go do this thing. Absolutely, let's do it. I think the biggest one we did, Kelsey, was what? We did like 200 people and two sessions, like back to back that one time, right before, I think that was right before Google Next 2019. Um, that was a heavy day. Um, but that was prior to Anthos. Like we didn't even call it Anthos at the time. Um, mm -hmm. So that was a pretty interesting session, but we try to remove the bias. And so when I say we revoke their credentials, we have them sign in at, with a Gmail account. We have them use a credit card. We try to pre-set up some of these. Um, that's how we were doing it in the early days. We try to pre-set up the environments for them so that there's not as much friction. Um, but in the beginning, we wanted our executives. We had folks like Ken Goldberg in there, um, you know, that was uh, sitting side by side with a Noogler who's on day three as, you know, a, a, you know, a very brand new engineer at Google um, trying to just create an account. And I remember she, she looked at Kelsey and she's like, this is almost impossible. You know, how in the world? The context there is unbelievable. So we didn't tell the executives that they would be a part of an empathetic engineering session, right? So it wasn't going in because, you know, if we would have told them ahead of time, they may have thought they would have need to prepare. How much code do we have to write? Even though a lot of our executives are super technical. So what we did was just try to give them a real time experience. And I think at the time there was this debate about a free tier without a credit card, right? So, you know, some services like, hey, you can have a free trial, but you have to enter your credit card and then we'll bill you later. Now, the challenge with that is you got to have a credit card. Most people don't trust that process. They may forget and feel like their credit card is going to get charged unexpectedly. And so some people do like the idea of a free tier minus the credit card. Now, if you're not really using the product every day, when you have to make that decision, whether we allow free tier, because there's reasons not to do this, like fraud, right? If a bunch of people do a bunch of free trials, you could be giving away a ton of compute. But the credit card allows you to reduce fraud by having at least some skin in the game to make sure you don't go over a certain budget, but also it introduces frictions to the casual developer that may not have their wallet nearby. And so to help people really feel the decision they were making, we said, hey, this is going to be the world's easiest empathy session. All you got to do is create a Google Cloud account. <laughs> That's it. So yeah, I do. And so imagine this process where, and the thing that makes this amazing is that we put a timer on, right? Everything gets interesting when you introduce the concept of limited time, like a chess match where there's a clock is way different than a chess match when there's a limited time. The other thing is when we break people in the teams too. And so it's almost like a competition between peers, right? You want bragging rights. Yeah, so it becomes a little bit of a competition where people group together and they try to solve this problem. Uh, and so as they go to do this, the first thing you hear people saying is like, I didn't bring my credit card. <laughs> Why do you need a credit card for this? And you let people just arrive to the conclusion on their own. And the key part of these empathy sessions, we like to have people present how far they got, what was the biggest roadblock, 
And then what would they do to resolve this and remove it for all customers? And then you're just getting this decision in real time and everyone's watching how people arrived at their decision. And at that point, people will walk away with the permanent thing we call empathy. You know, people learn better. Uh, you know, we've talked about the learning and teaching pyramid. If anyone, Kelsey's uh, partner wife is in uh, education. Um, and a lot of my friends are too. And when we went through the pandemic, I said, I've got to, I've got to make this virtual, but it has to be just as impactful as it used to be when we were in a room together. And so I learned about the learning pyramid and it makes so much sense. And it's, you know, 10%, you know, it's all about how, what percentage a person learns by the type of ways that they're learning something. Right. And so 10% is reading 20% is audio visual, 30% is a demo. And oftentimes you get stopped with that, especially inside of Google Cloud or if you're talking to a customer, right? And our engineers are like, yeah, 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 we know there's problems. You know, this bug has been open for, you know, six months already. This is in the backlog. The PM's like, what do you want me to do, right? It's, we've got all these CUJs, critical user journeys. You know, how does this play into it? And so we started that having more of a discussion. And so folks learn better by having a discussion, right? We're doing that right now, 50%. Um, they retain it if you discuss it together. And then we started realizing that 75% retainment is by practicing and doing it yourself. And that's when we had the aha moment and said, we have got to get these engineers working and doing exactly what we've been seeing in these customer engagements and the problems that we're seeing with these customers. And then after that, we're gonna have them teach other people. And that's 90% retention when you're talking about learning something new. Um, and it really just feeds back into emotional intelligence. It's not unlike what a lot of us have heard over time in, in our you know, environments and leadership and things like that. You know, a lot of people talk about emotional intelligence, but they don't really know what it is. Um, and even the types of empathy you know, come into play here, right? Um, you can have cognitive empathy, which is taking a perspective uh, on an intellectual level. Um, and compassionate empathy, which is feeling with someone and taking supportive action if needed. But until you physically feel what someone else is feeling, you're not going to have the full cycle of empathy uh, unless you go through all three pieces of empathy. I remember writing this program and thinking, okay, this is only going to be cognitive empathy because we're going to take the perspective on an intellectual level. But it really takes all three types. Um, and I've, I've seen directors like uh, we have a new director for our serverless org, Phil Beavers, um, and we actually have an internal uh, customer empathy culture council, um, you know, that reports up to, um, you know, TK and ORS as well. And so this has been a big piece of their program of having this spread throughout Google. Um, you know, we were talking about early days and about removing biases and how are we going to do this virtually right now? Um, this program is getting pulled into all of engineering onboarding for Nooglers. Next year, uh, if, if someone starts at Google, they're going to go through an engineering, empathetic engineering session, as well as learning what it is, what it's not, um, kind of the patterns and the non-patterns. And that's huge for us. Um, and that's something that we really wanted to do across the board, um, because you can't really have great engineering and great products for your customers unless you can have the folks that are building those products understand them truly. And, and it's, it's all about walking in their shoes. You know, this must lead to some level of frustration, especially with engineers who've had their way for so long. I think what we're trying to do is give people tools 
And so it's not a punishment. Uh, we're not trying to catch people off guard or highlight how bad their product is. What people do and the way we set it up, it feels like a tool, right? When someone teaches you how to swim for the first time, it can be frustrating, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like, wow, why am I in water when I was doing fine on land? <laughs> but once I teach you how to swim, then swimming becomes a tool. Now you can go to the beach, you can jump off the diving board. There are things you can do now that you couldn't do before. So empathetic engineering, we want to give people this tool. Like what we want to do is go beyond just those empathetic engineering sessions, because what we want people to do is when they're at the keyboard, we want them to have this perspective. It's just like site reliability engineering, SRE. SRE is a practice at Google. When you're building complex systems, they need to also be reliable. We don't want them to be reliable only when we point out that they're not reliable. We want people to be thinking about reliability the whole time. So much so that we have teams and disciplines dedicated to reliability. We have tools, we have terms like SLOs and SLAs. All of these things contribute to the ability to measure and focus on reliability. So when we think about empathetic engineering, we, we're saying as a discipline, if you bring in this tool set, this way of thinking, we want people to have a permanent stance that there is a real person on the other side of this. And so, yes, I think some people kind of found it frustrating. It's like, oh, I already know what's wrong with my thing. I don't need you to point it out. And it's like, yeah, so that's not necessarily the goal. The goal is to have you feel what our customers feel. And if you identify the exact same problem, we believe you'll have a much better tool to go out and fix it. What's really funny is in the early days when we were in person, inevitably, we would have a, a senior engineer show up, right? Um, my manager told me I needed to come to this. Why am I here? Is there, are there no customers here? Okay, then I don't think I need to stay. It was always really funny because you're inevitably going to have someone who's going to cross their arms and they're going to look at you and they're going to act like they're not really paying attention. They're like, this is such a waste of time. Why am I here for 90 minutes? You know, when I could be coding or I could be doing whatever. And um, at the end of the session, Alex, I can tell you, those folks become our biggest allies and our biggest cheerleaders internally mm -hmm. because it blows their minds. And I, I love my job. I love what I do. And I love that this is becoming a real practice inside of Google Cloud because it works. It's all based on psychology, to be honest. I feel like I'm, a, I think uh, Kelsey and I feel like we're coaches, obviously, for our teams and what we do and who we talk to, but we feel like we're, I love watching people grow and that's what happened. And I can tell you the funny story is um, a really senior PM who had been at Google for a long time and a product that I will not mention um, would always tell me. Kim, I don't need you to come in and do these for our team. We already, you don't need to tell me my quote unquote baby is ugly. We already know that it's got lots of problems. Um, you know, I don't, I feel like that's going to burn the team out. They don't need the feedback. And I said, you know, this is not about feedback. I get that you're getting lots of feedback internally. I get you're, you're getting feedback in the, in the community. You're getting feedback from, from management. This is about, you know, everyone learning to work together and understanding the dependencies and what to prioritize better than you, you know, well, we've got a great PM, we've got a great engineering leader. And then lo and behold, the same director I mentioned earlier, Phil Beavers, who's brand new for the serverless team um, as of the end of last year, who used to be an SRE, by the way, which I feel like is a huge thing mm -hmm. um, for us because we're very similar to what SRE does. He told their engineering director about the program and then engineering came to us directly instead of PM. 
and said, we needed this a long time ago. Why haven't you done this for our team? And so we all laughed. And then the PM came to the first session and he's like, okay, I get it now. This is absolutely what we should be doing. And one, one other surprising thing, I think, to all of this, even though we used to call it customer engineering, now we think about it as holistically as empathetic engineering. Yep. It also brought empathy between the teams. If you're on the sales side, maybe you're a customer engineer. If you were in support, if you were an SRE, if you're on Android product, having all of those teams work on a problem together in groups where they have to team up. We've also brought documentation and UX into these. And they all walk away with like a call to action. Let's go and improve the docs. I can do my part. I see why this is hard. There's no easy fix here. I didn't know that all of these things had to fall in place. Oh, even though I'm here for their empathetic engineering session, it's actually their problem lies on my side of the product. Mm -hmm. It's our lack of APIs that's making this difficult. So that shared empathetic or that shared empathy between the teams and for our customers is just something that kind of emerged from doing this over the years. Yeah, it happened organically over time. And, you know, we have a couple of really good examples. One of the questions that when a team comes to talk to me about wanting to do some sessions or to partner with us on some strategy, um, when should we do this is when, when we get a big question around it's, you know, traditionally when we first started, we were doing Kubernetes and GKE, Kelsey and I were. And then we branched out and, and cloud code was one of the first ones that we did that had not been released yet. I think that was released at what next 2018, maybe. Um, and so we worked with that team and it was still called Kube code and really, you know, brought in Apogee. We brought in folks from uh, Kubeflow. We brought in folks from the regular Kubernetes team and some very senior folks like Tim Hawken, Brian Grant. We got them all in a room and, and did a simple exercise that should be, you know, in our opinion, number one use case of why a customer would care about cloud code or kube code at the time, you know, minds were blown. And that actually changed the product and the trajectory. And that's one of Kelsey's biggest, you know, things that he'll tell you about. That's how that product actually launched in a better way. And it landed so much better than it would have before that empathy session. Oh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw that, you know, you know, in conclusion, we talk about like, what are the constraints to have when you're developing an empathetic approach. And I think most companies have the concept of dog fooding or using your own product. And I think what you have to do is try to find a way to remain customer zero, take a step back and try to visualize the person on the other side. So that means at some point in your development cycle, you might need to go get like a brand new, fresh, clean room laptop and try the entire experience from setting up a new account to logging in for the first time reviewing the docs and see if there's any friction before they get to the value that you're working on every day. And those things remind us that people use our entire products, not just simple or independent features. So I think some of the constraints you got to do here is make sure that you're not punishing people. You want them to learn empathy and you want them to be able to do this on their own going forward. So the goal is not to have a central empathetic engineering organization. Don't do that. I know some people want to have senior empathetic engineer too. Don't do that. This is something that you want to weave into your entire culture mm -hmm. and you can kickstart it by having things like empathy sessions, engaging with customers and giving people an opportunity to be customer zero. Where do you feel you are on that journey to uh, build that empathetic culture in the en engineering team? I know that we're really far because last year I didn't have to do any of them, not a single one. And all I'm seeing now are features that are being shipped 
because of someone's gone through an empathetic engineering session, you look at the friction log and someone's turned that friction log into products that customers can use. And Kim has put together some things we've collaborated on, such as like an internal course where people actually sign up as an official course, they get certified so they can go on to lead those empathetic engineering sessions. And someone that was onboarded during the pandemic went through one of those courses, graduated and ran their own empathetic engineering session. And in Google, we have this internal system where you can publicly recognize people. We call it like G-Thinks. And you can send an email and sometimes there's a small monetary reward, but you have the opportunity to describe in exact detail how someone has made an impact beyond expectation to your team, product, or service. And just watching those come in from people who came into Google a few months later, learn how to do these sessions, and then go make an impact. And it's not just the fact that they ran an empathy session, it's the fact they now have a relationship with the product manager, the engineer, and they've established trust as a viable feedback loop for the long term. And I don't have to be in part of those equations directly anymore. So congratulations to Kim. And I think now empathetic engineering is just in many ways part of the Google culture. Kim, take it out. Why don't you just con conclude us with some of your last thoughts here? Yeah, I've really seen the culture evolve. We've got folks from people ops that want to understand it from a culture perspective. And, you know, Google Cloud was formed uh, fairly quickly by a lot of folks that came from a lot of different organizations. Um, some, they brought in the good pieces of the culture. And sometimes, unfortunately, you got to unlearn a lot of the other pieces of the culture. Um you know, we're a very consensus-driven, collaborative organization, first and foremost, I will say. It is, it is honestly, in a lot of ways, one of the best companies I've worked with and for due to the people that are there. As you get bigger and you scale, you know, I think we have over 130,000 employees at Google now. And a lot of it, obviously, we're all remote. It's tough to get to know people especially Nooglers, especially people who have onboarded since the pandemic started. And this has really been a core way that, you know, the feedback I've gotten from leadership is this has been a way for their teams to bond in ways that they wouldn't have been able to bond before. You know, there's no conversations in a, in a micro kitchen. There's no conversations, you know, in the hallway, you know, things like that. You know, we're really missing a lot of, uh, the water cooler talk and seeing folks in person. And so I think that, that that's been a really great feeling for me is that it's helped the teams, you know, be stronger together, right? We're all in this together. And that's why we include, like I said, you know, all the pieces of the puzzle, right? Tech writing and user experience and PM and folks from sales, PSO, you know, it's really about the whole experience. Well, we're looking forward to the rest of the year and, and getting this into all the new onboarding for engineering folks and, and and seeing what's next for 2022 for sure. Oh, great. Well, this has been so much fun. I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. I was just thinking, gosh, you know, 2014, there we were in, in Seattle and uh, thinking how lucky I was. And I still feel that to, to know people like you, to hear your perspectives is just just so so incredibly valuable to, for, for me. So I appreciate your time. And Daryl, uh, it must be really interesting to hear all these perspectives because I think it brings us and maybe even some different perspectives on our own coverage. Thank you very much, uh, Kim. Thank you very much, Kelsey. And we'll uh, look forward to uh, talking to you soon. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Alex. Good to see y'all.
Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Simplecast to listen to more episodes on the new Stack Makers. Create and share your favorite audiogram using our Simplecast player. For more articles and great stories, go to the newstack.io. Thank you.